Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Connections and Directions, our University of Michigan Civil and Environmental Engineering podcast. My name is Michelle Santillian, and I am the CEE Marketing Communications Specialist and host of this series. During our podcasts, we are featuring members of our CEE community and how their work reflects our mission of engineers in service to society. We will be highlighting our strategic directions and our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. CEE's five strategic directions are human habitat experience, shaping resource flows, adaptation, automation, and smart infrastructure finance. CEE is here today with Professor Nancy Love, who is the Joanne Silverstein Distinguished University Professor and Borchardt and Glisson Collegiate Professor for CEE. Professor Love has her bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and her PhD in Environmental Systems Engineering from Clemson. Thank you for joining us today, wow. Professor Love. Thank you for having me. Please share with our listeners some details about your research area and goals and how they align with CEE's strategic directions and our mission of engineers in service to society. Sure. Well, I'm one of those who uh, spans a lot of areas, and I like to work at interfaces. I don't, I don't tend to work in one little area, and so I'm going to largely touch on every area of the strategic directions. But my group generally is focused on understanding how engineering design and operation of water systems influence sustainability and influence equity and equitable access to healthy water services. Um, In that work, I really have kind of two threads that intersperse between sustainability and equitable access. Um, I mentioned the engineering design. Um, And so a lot of our work there on both drinking water and wastewater side is looking at how population changes historically and those that are coming. So with climate change, there's expectations of climate migration, change population um, densities in different living spaces, cities, rural, etc., And here in the upper Midwest, we have a history of population decline in many of our cities, the, um, you know, the Rust Belt, the industrial base. And when we built our water infrastructure in these cities, um, we built for growth. And when we teach our classes, we teach uh, the students, if you look in the textbooks, it's all about growing populations. Um, We need to design for adaptation. And that's not been part of our kind of design um, mindset, if you will. And so we see the consequences of design for growth when the population declines. So um, that side of my work focuses um, currently mostly on the drinking water side, where we see that um, in cities where you have declining populations, you actually don't have um, kind of uh, comparable water quality in all parts of the city. Our, our mindset and our kind of mantra is that when we treat water and we, it leaves the treatment plant, that our system is designed to distribute the same water quality to everybody. Um, but we don't necessarily see that. And we have some parts of the city where you have water that's been in the pipes for a very long time. Uh, I focus with my collaborators on how the water quality changes from a chemical and a microbiological perspective. 
And we have data to show that um, we believe that people who are in parts of the city where the water's been in pipes for a long time are at a higher risk of um, illness from some contamination events. I focus more on the microbiology, but I work with collaborators like um, Professor Alex Stuka, uh, who works at Disinfection Byproducts, um, and that these uh, risks are inequitable because oftentimes the individuals living in those parts of the cities are our poorest um, uh, community members. Oftentimes they are uh, underrepresented minority community members. And, and so there are kind of social dynamics associated with this and, and justice elements associated with this. So we have a science element, but we also do it in the context of working with and in partnership with community members. Um, the other side of my work then focuses on um, resources and resource efficiency and the inefficiency of resource flows through our, our, our urban spaces in particular. And as you know, I've, I've focused on um, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium primarily um, and how we capture those nutrients um, in a more sustainable way and repurpose them either for commodity products or as fertilizers to then offset conventional fertilizer production. Um, so those are really where my work is. And I do that both in a domestic setting and in a global setting. And that said, how did you become interested in your area of study? Was there a course that you took or did you have a personal experience perhaps in your time in school that led you to focus on this area of research? You know, um, I'm at a point in my career where it's, it's like an evolution uh, <laughs> over time. But maybe I'll start by saying how I got into environmental engineering in the first place. Um, I was one of those high school students who started writing letters to colleges as a, like a sophomore, <laughs> trying to figure out what the next step was. But I grew up in a family business um, where my family managed golf courses. And um, my father and later my brothers, um, my, my sister and I didn't work on the golf course, but um, they were part of maintaining the grass and using pesticides and herbicides and all kinds of things that I knew just couldn't possibly be good for the environment. Um, and then the human exposure of some of those chemicals. So I originally, when I was in high school, thought I wanted to do something natural and with nature, and I wanted to develop sustainable golf courses, which actually is a is an area of interest now, but it wasn't when I was going to college. So that um, when I started reading the Thompson's Guide and, and how, you know, what, what should you major in? That's when I discovered environmental engineering. And I realized that that was the closest thing. Um, and so then I went to the University of Illinois um, in civil engineering, which is where environmental engineering sits. And I ended up being a cooperative education student. So I, that means I was gone every other semester um, working, and I worked for both a coal mining organization in Southern Illinois, who, um, you know, there's a lot of environmental consequences of, of surface mining of coal, and um, they discontinued their co-op program, and then I moved to a co-op job with the U.S. Navy in Southern Indiana, which is an interesting thing to think about, the Navy in Southern Indiana, because uh, there's no ocean there. <laughs> Um, 
that was a fabulous job. It I got to do a ton of stuff, and it was uh, at the Crane, what was called at the time the Crane Naval Weapons Support Center, um, and they manufactured artillery and uh, different types of things for both the Army and the Navy. Uh, but there were a lot of environmental consequences of those processes, and I was environmental monitoring. I was the person who went around and found the explosives in the biosolids and the sludge and figured out who was dumping the uh, different heavy metals down the sewer and uh, things of that nature, and it was great. And so that was kind of how I got into it, and that was how I stayed in it. Um, and then I worked in consulting for a few years, and developed a lot of connections in practice and really appreciated the practice, but always wanted to go back and teach. Uh, so that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. And then in terms of these areas, I, you know, when I started uh, as a professor, most of the funding was going down towards what's called Superfund. It was the subsurface remediation contamination. In fact, um, I was, um, when I worked at, at the Crane Naval Weapons Sports Center, it was in 1982, and that was ground zero of Superfund. I was there when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came in, and we were look. I had one of my jobs was to look at the plane flyovers to see where they had dug earth, and to figure out where they had buried the mustard gas and the TCE and different things that were produced during uh, outcomes of World War II, and and so we were putting in wells to try to find the groundwater contamination. So when I came out and I started as a professor, most of the funding in environmental engineering was related to people working in the subsurface groundwater. I had always worked in treatment plants. And I was, so I decided to stay with the treatment plants <laughs> where everybody else was going over to the subsurface. And that ended up working out for me because there weren't a lot of people who were making that decision at that time. Um, and if you look at it today, you know, Superfund is still around, but, you know, we're in a lot of different areas right now as an environmental engineering profession. And um, I decided to follow my passion. And that's what I always recommend to new faculty and students who are going out. Just follow what really interests you most. Don't go to wherever the people think you should be. Go to where you think you should be. <laughs> and that said, as this has evolved, you've gotten involved with things um, such as P for the Peonies mm -hmm. and um, many of the other um, research areas that, you, that you're involved with. Can you talk a little bit about um, the next P for the Peonies, for example? Oh, yeah. So... I, P for the Peonies is about our resource efficiency program. It's about thinking about how nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium cycle through our communities. And the University of Michigan has um, the North America's largest cultivar of peonies. It's beautiful. If anybody hasn't been there, you should go in June. Um, and uh, a lot of people visit. And so we saw that as an opportunity to talk about nutrient flows through communities, and it just exposed people to the idea of recycling the circular economy and recycling those nutrients in our cities. Um, and it turns out peonies benefit from, in their early growth phases, uh, phosphorus and potassium to have more flowers and less fewer green leaves. So um, that's where that came from. And um, we've, we've been out in the gardens for a couple of years now. We're going to be out there again this summer, perhaps uh, with a, a little less um, work involved because we've done a lot. We've we've done a lot of counting of peony flowers and things like that, um, and but we really like the outreach to the community. So what that links to is my work outside of the university walls. So really, since I started 
as a, an assistant professor and through today, um, I've always found ways for my graduate students, for sure, and as many undergraduates as possible, to work on projects that send them outside of the university um, uh, walls, if you will. So they're working in, in a utility, they're working in a, with a city, within a community, something like that. Um, and so, um, you know, so for my whole career, I've been doing that. I would say in the last 15 years, uh, when I started doing work internationally as well, and, and in doing international work in low and middle income countries, really low income countries, Ethiopia, um, you know, there's a cultural competency training that one has to go through and really understanding their privilege and how to appropriately partner and interact with people in other cultures. Um, uh, so I, I really started to develop, I, I'd always done that, not knowing it, like in the wastewater utilities with my students, because um, they would have to go onto a wastewater site and work with operators who didn't have the same benefits and privileges as the students had. And so I always spent time making sure that they um, understood that the wastewater utility was there, not the students, but it was the operators and the, the staff who worked there. It was their space, their place. You have to respect them. And they have a lot to offer. They have a lot of knowledge that you will benefit from really listening. Uh, and it turns out all those kind of key core things are part of cultural competency training. <laughs> and then Flint happened. And when Flint happened, I got pulled in because of work that I was uh, doing um, around point of use filters, which were being deployed at a very high rate in the Flint community because of the lead contamination. And I knew that if you don't deploy them correctly, you can actually have biological contamination. So it was necessary to develop some best practices and get that out to the community as best as possible. And so between the National Science Foundation and in somebody who connected me through to the mayor of the city, um, we got permission to um, kind of do some work in the city with the point of view filters. And that's grown into a much bigger thing in my partnership with the city Flint. Um, and I remain today a member of their water system advisory council. And I work with the Flint community schools with partners in the community on um, their water quality in the buildings. Um, and really taking that cultural competency training and bringing it into domestic applications with students. There's a lot of interest by the students. And our research now has moved to actually uh, doing that kind of work um, as part of research projects where we have community liaisons who become partners and, you know, they're, they're paid members of our team. They're co-authors on our papers. Um, really using these methods. So that's kind of a methodological element that we bring to the research around sustainability and equitable access to water services. And those are excellent examples of DEI that you've just been talking about, you know, especially the social and environmental justice component and the cultural competency. Mm -hmm. Are there additional ways um, that you bring diversity, equity, and inclusion into your research and courses? Um, yes. So, um, you know, in addition to trying to recruit a diverse student body, um, I just this semester in um, CEE uh, 465, in our, which is our junior level water wastewater design class, um, I, for the first time, we did a collection of case studies um, as a kind of a special side project for student teams. 
we chose nine case studies, and those case studies were all about water system failures in places or in contexts where there was a social or an environmental justice element to it. And we, the students not only had to, it wasn't just about the technology, they had most of the project was about actually learning the history of how they got there, really appreciating the kind of the humanities side of their education. Um, what was the history and what is the power map? So they had to develop power maps of players, who, who made decisions when, how, why, who were allies to equitable decision-making and who were barriers to that. And then, and then by giving them um, kind of a couple of uh, I, um, papers and, and kind of information about um, the, the kind of pillars of equitable community um, engagement, um, what would you suggest, you know, I had them suggest, like, how do you bring all these different players to the table so that you can have the, the voices that often are not heard, you know, heard, and become part of then the technology solutions that you think might be the best option here. So it was an exploration um, of these nine different case studies. And then we did a, um, like a little digital poster session in class with food and stuff. And um, I think, I hope that what comes from this is some of these case studies can be deep, deeper dives in future years or for other classes. Um, yeah, it was it was a fun, but it was also a way to help the students recognize that, you know, we do need to have technical competency, but that is insufficient to the entire concept of, um, you know, sustainable and equitable engineering design. Absolutely. And what is the most ex exciting aspect of your job and why? <laughs> oh, there are a lot of them. I mean, I... You know, it's also evolved over time, you know, as you go through your career. And so where I'm at today, um, I, I feel like all my students who do research, for instance, are really working at intersections. We work with people across campus. I just finished a sabbatical with the Center for Social Solutions, and I'm still working with them. And I'm, you know, doing work on workforce development and the water field and equity and decision makers and things that feel like they're very outside of engineering, but they very much are affected by engineering. So I love working at those interfaces and that my students in their research are actually diving in and working on research questions that go well beyond the research lab. Um, so that's, that's one aspect. I also am really enjoying like the case studies in CE465 and exploring ways to, I'm always tinkering with my classes. It's it's one of these things that I have to stop doing because it, it's more work. <laughs> um, um, and I promised myself, don't create new content. But the case studies ended up being, I think, a really nice addition. The students seem to enjoy it. So, um, you know, I'm enjoying exploring different ways in the classroom to bring in these DEI concepts that go beyond just the words, that actually... Um, you know, really make the students think and develop maybe some a different way of understanding their role as engineers and their privilege as engineers. So, so yeah, those are those are those are fun, and um, I think we always have to rediscover ourselves through our careers. And so that's that's my kind of current space. <laughs> and by your saying that, it made me think of another question, and that is, how have you seen environmental engineering 
evolve over these years? I know you mentioned about how it started in, in 1982, very focused on Superfund and more of a remediation aspect. Mm-hmm. What are some other changes that you've witnessed either personally um, through your profession or just in general mm-hmm. in the profession? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, environmental engineering is a discipline that is by its nature intersectional. Um it hasn't always historically, I think, functioned that way, but I think it is increasingly um, recognizing that. But it, so it's, it's engineering, but it always brings in natural sciences from the technology standpoint. I think the human policy, social side of it has always been there, but it's actually starting to, um, I guess, get more respect in some ways. I also think as environmental engineers, we have to recognize that we can't be all things. And myself as an environmental engineer, the way I address the, these kind of larger complex elements, all the things we've talked about, I collaborate a lot. I collaborate with humanists. I collaborate with people who are historians. Um, I also collaborate with chemists and scientists and people in policy and economics. And so I think part of it is that we need to develop comprehensive, diverse teams and not just become, you know, you know the portal for all knowledge. Um, and I think um, we're seeing more of that, I guess, within the discipline, although I think it's always at risk of individuals feeling like they have to become the expert at all these things. I think that's a, that's a mistake. And, um, and it's kind of tricky. So I'm at a later point in my career where you know, it's easy for me to collaborate across and not worry so much about who gets credit for what. For a new incoming assistant professor or for a graduate student who's going to leave and go work in the field or either academia or practice, they have to establish themselves. And and so there's a hesitancy to be that maybe heavily collaborative. Um, And I, I wish there were more space for that because I actually think that the foundation that somebody will develop their career on is going to be more solid if they develop those collaborations from the beginning. So, yeah. And is there a general message you would like to convey to our U of M CEE audience? Is there anything that you would like to address that I have not asked about? Um, I guess I didn't talk a lot about the strategic directions, <laughs> um, um, but if you've listened to, uh, to what this is, uh, you know, we have... Um, we've recently changed the names of them, but human habitat experience, uh, which I think the work I do fits in, shaping resource flows, which clearly we work in, adaptation, I think about climate migration and how that affects infrastructure works, automation and data-driven innovation I haven't talked about. But we're doing actually quite a bit in that space, working with uh, MIDAS, the Michigan Institute for Data Sciences, um, because again, they're the experts and they can bring we have big data sometimes and working together, we can understand our systems better and come up with control schemes that are more efficient and energy efficient and so forth. So from the standpoint of what others see, the strategic directions for the department, I think really build the whole student. And um, I'm particularly proud of this because the first strategic directions happened when I was chair and it was kind of a pivot point for the department to really see how we function as a unit and not as kind of individual uh, divisions, if you will. And so we've been building upon those strategic directions now through multiple chairs. And I'm really happy to see the, the legacy and longevity of that concept. We don't use the word 
strategic plan because those strategic plans can sit on shelves and no one looks at them. But a strategic direction is living and it's evolving. And that's exactly what's happening here. So I'm particularly happy to see that continue and to see other colleagues step in and take the leadership and really keep it going. Um, and I think students who come into a department that really does that kind of um, deep thinking process and leadership in the industry, in the field, if you will, um, will be in a really good space. So, yeah. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to our podcast conversation. For more information about CEE at Michigan, please visit our website at cee.umich.edu. You can also reach our YouTube channel and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages from our website.